Let's just uh, bow our hearts again, shall we, as we come to God's word. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray the same prayer every week, but Lord, what else can we say? Because Lord, we are just so grateful that you have given us this record, this testimony, this instruction. Lord, it's your word that reveals to us about our Savior. It reveals our own fallen nature. Lord, it reveals the eternity that awaits those who put their trust in you. And Lord, it confirms that you will strengthen and uphold and keep those who have committed themselves to you. And so Father, just encourage us this morning through your word, we pray. Give us ears that will hear, Lord, eyes that are open, that will see spiritual things. And Father, hearts that are plowed and ready to receive the seed of your word. May the seed this morning go down deep into that soil and bring forth a hundredfold, we pray. So we just give you this time. Take my words and Lord, just open our ears, we pray, that you would move us closer to you, draw us away from the things of this world, and that we would fall, fall more in love with Jesus. We ask in his precious name. Amen. So we've been going through a, a journey through Psalm 119. It's the longest psalm in the Bible. It's an incredible psalm uh, in so many respects. Uh, we've come as far as verse 105, which is where we're going to pick up in a moment. But what I've been trying to, uh, I suppose, show and demonstrate as we've been going through this study is just the incredible design that's here. We see the psalmist start off right at the beginning uh, by just really setting a, a standard that's impossible to keep. He speaks of the blessings that God wants to bless us with. The, the, the opening few verses of the psalm, blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord, and blessed are they that keep his testimonies. He speaks of a double blessing. A double blessing is typically reserved for the firstborn, those who have that place of privilege. And of course we know that we have been granted that place. We read in John's Gospel, behold what manner of love that the Father has bestowed, poured upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. And I do take a little bit of issue with some of the modern translations that uh, translate that as children of God because it misses the point. The point is that the sons were the ones who would get the inheritance. They would get that portion of the firstborn. But God says that there is no male or female. There is no slave or free, Jew or Gentile. And that whoever you are in Christ, you are given that position of the firstborn son. That's an honor and that's a privilege. And that is a double blessing. But notice also here that in Psalm 119, we find there are conditions. Because it speaks of being undefiled in the way. Walking in the law of the Lord. Keeping his testimonies. Seeking him with a whole heart. Now can any one of us honestly say that we've done that? And the answer of course is no. It sets a standard so high. Very much like, as I've said a number of times now, the Beatitudes. Where Jesus in Matthew 5 gives us this list of ways of being. The Beatitudes. And says, that's the standard. And we look at it and we go, well, we can't keep that. Oswald Chambers, amongst many other scholars, pointed out that that's entirely the point. Those beatitudes are there to make us go, we cannot do this. And then we know we need a saviour. We need someone to work in us something that's not there naturally. And of course that's the process and the work of sanctification, which also is a work of grace, just as is salvation itself. And so we find this, this standard, this perfect standard is set but then the, the psalmist goes through and starts to look at his own life, the second section. And again, each of these eight verse blocks, each of the 
the Hebrew letters are found at the beginning of the first of each section. So the first section begins with the Hebrew letter Aleph, the second section, each verse begins with the Hebrew letter Bet, and so on. So the, the second section, the psalmist starts looking at his own life. He realizes he's, he's a sinner. Just like us, fallen short of God's glory and God's standard. And what I love about this psalm is the honesty. Because we, we all do this thing, don't we, where we meet each other. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. And we're not, are we, most of the time? Most of the time there's problems, there's stresses, there's issues. Most of the time we would just love someone just to sit and listen to us. They might not be able to solve the problem, but it's just nice that somebody would just listen. And that's the reality. Well, the psalmist just paints that picture that actually he wasn't alright. There were real problems. He was struggling with sin in his life. There were things he knew had to be changed. And as he goes on, he first of all starts through the first few sections, starts dealing with the sin issue, but then you start to see... An incredible progression uh, as the psalm goes on. Now I'm a bit nerdy, so I've kind of laid it all out in a kind of a, a grid format with each of the eight verse blocks. But it's fascinating what you see as you look at the design. Because you, you start to see that from a, a, about four or five sections in, the psalmist starts to become very aware of the proud. And then the focus of that section all becomes the way that the proud have oppressed him and caused him problems, they've laid traps for him and everything else. Very much like we experience you know, being a Christian sometimes is tough. And there's a lot of people that will give us a hard time because we have our faith. And even if it's not the proud externally, it's the proud internally. Because bear in mind, when scripture speaks of the proud, it's not just speaking of other people, because our own hearts are proud. And so sometimes one of the greatest enemies we struggle and battle with is ourselves. It's our own flesh life. And the silence goes through that. And it's been this journey that we've been going through. Coming to this place that we've kind of reached now where... Everything was going so well to the point that he was saying, Lord, I want to talk to other people about this. I want to share what you've done with others. And that's what we see when we get into um, some of these sections we've been going through recently. Verse 79, just says, Let those that fear thee turn unto me and those that have known thy testimonies. I mean, he's got to the point of saying, Lord, I think we've got this sorted. You know, anyone that wants to tell them to come to me, I can share. And then suddenly... He's back down in the, in, the, in the mire again. And verse 81, it's like, my soul faints for thy salvation. But I hope in thy word. My eyes fail for thy word. I've become like a bottle in the smoke. And again, these verses we looked at previously. But you see how, just like us, you think you've got it. You think you're walking by faith. And suddenly you realize you're struggling and you're stumbling and something isn't quite right. And this is part of this journey that we go on. Now, of course, the New Testament is full of verses that tell us how we should live and why we should live this way. And, but this is very much a practical how-to. And God gives us the details. And it's all about God's word. And we got to the, the real low point in the, the psalm, in the previous section, where the, the, the psalmist just cries out, effectively, Lord, help me. It just comes that there is no other solution. I've run out of options. I've run out of any of my own wisdom or plans to deal with this. It just says, Lord, help thou me. But then there's this kind of lift as he starts to come out of the mire, as God starts to change things for him and give him this grace in abundance. And so we, we come to this verse that we're at this morning. And this verse to me is a very... Very special verse. Let me just read, I'm sure you're familiar, but thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Now my gran was a really big influence on me. He was a 
young boy. I used to get home from school. I used to take the newspaper down uh, after school. My mum used to, mum and dad got a newspaper and I used to run it down to grands after I got home from school. And we'd sit there chatting about all sorts of things, but almost always it would come around to the Bible and she'd read to me from the Bible or she'd read to me things from Oswald Chambers. And at the time I didn't understand a lot of it. Some of it went over my head, but a lot of it did stick. I'm so grateful. And that's why, you know, we've, we've said before, if you're a grandparent, you have such an important role in ministry in your children's or your grandchildren's lives. You can influence them in ways that you would never perceive. A great example in scripture is Manasseh, the worst king of Judah. And yet at the end of his life, you remember he's taken away to Babylon, in prison in Babylon, he repents. And for the last few years of his life, he becomes a really good and godly king. And he ends his days in obedience. Now his own son goes right off the rails, only reigns for two years. But then his grandson comes to the throne, just eight years old, a young man by the name of Josiah. And Josiah had seen his grandfather. He'd seen that change. He'd seen this man who was suddenly godly in every aspect. And clearly Manasseh's godly end to his life had been a big influence on Josiah. Josiah becomes one of the best kings Israel had, or Judah, the southern kingdom. So we can have a big impact. But getting back onto our point this morning, when my, I was about 13, my grand bought me for a Christmas present, a Schofield reference Bible. And in the, inside the front cover, she just wrote this verse. And so kind of from that moment, it became a, a special verse. It had obviously sentimental value, but over the years, it became more than that. It's more of a life verse for me because it's a verse, it's an encouragement in difficult times. But it's more than that because it's also an instruction to be closely adhered to. If, if you like, it's a goal to aim at. It's a, a reality check also that just brings us back time and time again to God's word. It's also in many ways prophetic. I mean, from the age that I started reading, about 13, I mean, I, I've said to you before, I, I didn't read a single book, I don't think, until I got to 13 and then I, I read the Bible that year. Uh, my sister used to read Book after book after book, was, she was down, we were chatting about this during the week and laughing. She was saying she could never figure out why I didn't want the, the pocket money that mum and dad were giving for reading books. I just had no inclination to, to read until God just stirred my heart. And it was this verse, this book, this Bible. You know, God's word is a, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It gives us that confidence to take those steps forward. And, and you know, you think about where the world is. You think about the, the futility of people in the world. They don't know what their next step is. They don't know where they should go. How many times, even as Christians, do we ask that question, I don't know what to do, or what should I do in this situation? Well, the answer's here. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. It's God's word that will show you how to go and where to go and when to go. All of those things, yeah, we try to muddle through life on our own and we're going to stumble. There's so many dangers, there's so many traps, we'll come back to some of those things in a moment, but God's word is that which gives us the clarity and that understanding. And so often we try to find our answers elsewhere. Of course, it's not to say that for myself I've not wandered, but the reality is, as we were singing that song a moment ago, turn your eyes on Jesus. You know, the things of earth will become strangely dim. You know, and when you get accustomed to the light of God's word, the things of this world do become dim. And it's not that you don't ever go astray, but when you do, you suddenly realise the contrast. You suddenly realise what it's like without God. What it's like without having his word as the, the central tenant of your life. You know, and it's, I truly, I love God's word more than I can ever 
convey. I love it because it is God's word. You know, he bothered to write to us. You know, even today, if we want to make something official, we put it in writing. God has done the same. He's put his word in writing to us. We, we saw last week, we were talking about his word being settled in heaven forever. The other thing I love about God's word is that we can prove it. It's true. It's not just a religious book. And I've had no, numerous conversations with people about the authenticity of the Bible. Grateful for the likes of Bill Cooper. We've got some of his books at the back there. who have done such a great job in showing that the Bible is true. That we can really truly trust it. Historically, we can trust it. Everything the Bible says about historical people and places has been verified. We prove it. It's been proven to be right. The Bible is true scientifically. And a lot of people struggle with this because they think, well, the Bible's not a science book. No, it's not a science book. If it was a science book, it would have had to be rewritten because every science book out there has been rewritten and modified and changed. The Bible's never changed. You know, the Bible says that everything reproduces after its kind. That's a scientific statement and it's a statement of fact. Always been seen to be true. Never ever any deviation from that. If you look at the world's wisdom, they'll tell you that things will reproduce other than their kind. Any evidence? Never. No. Is it possible? No. Not scientifically. And yet, for some reason, academia chooses to accept that rather than God's wisdom. So we can we can prove the details, we can prove the integrity. I love Paul when he gets to reasoning with people in the New Testament. You reasoned with them from the Scriptures. God in Isaiah says, come let us reason together. Our, our faith is a reasonable faith. We, we read, and we saw last time, that... God's word is settled in heaven. So we don't have to fear that man will undo it because they can't get at it. You know, as we saw last time also, that God's word has made us wiser than our teachers. As I said, my own personal experience, I ended up teaching people that have taught me. But God's word has also quickened us. It's made us alive. It's strengthened us. And these are just verses coming out of this psalm that we've read already. It will continue to do that. It's been our reason to hope. It's been our comfort. And ultimately, it's going to be our light for the way home, for the journey to come. I remember years ago, I used to, when I was in Kent, I used to cycle to my place of work, which is about eight miles away. And when you get to this time of year and it suddenly gets very, very dark in the evening, to cycle across a, a road that went by one of the, the golf courses and there was no street lights and it just got very, very dark. And so I had obviously lights on the bike and things. I know I don't look like somebody who exercises much, but that was some time ago. But, you know, just cycling in, in, in the situation, with one occasion I remember distinctly my lights failed, the, the battery just died. And suddenly it was really, really dark. I mean, like, there was potholes and things I knew in the road. And it was quite dangerous, actually, and I had to slow right down. Well, that's what it's like. When you take God's word out of your life, when that's not the light that's illuminating your path, it's like the lights that have been turned off. And you are very likely to stumble and fall. Spurgeon makes this comment, he says... One of the practical benefits of Holy Writ is guidance in the acts of daily life. It is not sent to astound us with its brilliance, but to guide us by its instruction. It is true that the head needs illumination, but even more the feet need direction, else head and feet may both fall into a ditch. Happy is the man who personally appropriates God's word and practically uses it as his comfort and counsellor, a lamp for his own feet. Now, I'd encourage you just to try and take portions of Scripture, to learn them, memorize them, because the Holy Spirit will bring those things back to your memory at times that you need it. 
in our family, we're trying to do that. I've set the girl a cha- the girls a challenge that they can get some pocket money. Any psalm that they memorize, they can get some pocket money. Because I want them just to get into reading God's word and be excited about God's word. It's a great foundation for life. And I know how much, for me, it has helped. We carry on verse 106. It says, For I have sworn, and I will perform it, that I will keep thy righteous judgments. Now, all of these things are connected. They're not just independent thoughts. It's interesting because the psalmist here is saying that I've sworn I'll perform it in reference to using God's word as a lamp and a light. A lamp to our feet and a light to our path. He says that I will keep thy righteous judgments. Now, it's interesting because the phrase translated, I have sworn, it's actually just one Hebrew word. This is probably mispronounced rather, but it's something along the lines of shabu. And it simply means to swear as if repeating a declaration seven times. It has this idea of seven contained within it. It's not just saying, I, I've sworn, I, I've said this, but repeatedly, seven times. Now, seven is interesting because scripturally the number seven always has reference to things that are complete. Seven days in a week, seven notes in, a, in an octave, the eighth notes, the new beginning and so on. Seven colors in the rainbow and we could go on and on. Just, just natural things. But God has interwoven sevens not only in nature, but all through his word. And the next phrase we've got there is, I will perform. Again, another single Hebrew word. And that carries the implication of rising or standing up to establish. So, in a sense, we could render the Hebrew text like this. is I have declared seven times and will rise up to guard and protect thy righteous judgments. In a sense, to paraphrase and expound it, what we're saying here is that your righteous judgments concerning me, concerning the wicked, concerning the way you have called me to walk, are so precious to me now that I would jealously guard them and protect them from any that would rob me of them, including myself. And so I will rise up and take a stand until they have completely, seven times that idea, transformed my mind. Because that's what this is all about. It's about being transformed by the renewing of our mind. I know how we need that because our mind is so wrapped up in the world systems and the world's ways. You know, memory is a very interesting thing because there's a lot of things that we memorize without even thinking that we're memorizing. It's simply through repetition of hearing something or doing something and we remember things. But it's worrying when you stop to consider that most of the things you remember are things of this world. Worldly wisdom, worldly advice. You know, we need to be memorizing and committing things of scripture to our heart. Because it will transform our mind. It will transform the way we think. Really, this verse is, you know, I've sworn I will perform it, that I will keep my righteous judgments. It's, it's keeping not just in terms of obedience, but keeping as in holding and treasuring, holding close. Spurgeon again says, perhaps mistrusting his own fickle mind, he had pledged himself in sacred form to abide faithful to the determinations and decisions of his God. Whatever path might open before him, he was sworn to follow that only upon which the lamp of the word was shining. And that's what we need because life is confusing enough. And so we need to resign our hearts to only going where God's word illuminates. He carries on and says, verse 107, I am afflicted very much. Quicken me, O Lord, according unto thy word. Now, Here we find that the proud have afflicted him. We've seen that already. God had afflicted him and he makes mention of that. His own sin had brought affliction. But in all of this, there was a working together for good. 
that God had used all of these things. Because now he cries effectively, make me alive according to your word. Because I'm afflicted in all of these different ways. But quicken me, Lord, according to your word. Now, in this section, really, in the main, it's very positive. And it's bearing witness to an increase of grace in his life. Now, one of the interesting things, and as I mentioned already, I'm just putting all these notes into into a book so that we'll have a full study at the end of it. But this week I was actually looking at the Hebrew letters. Now, as I said earlier, each of the sections begins with a different Hebrew letter. What is absolutely fascinating is that each letter in Hebrew has a meaning. And that meaning sets the theme for each of the sections. It's, it's been designed that way. And so the the theme for this section we're in now is the Hebrew letter Nun. And it says, verb means to propagate or increase. And that's exactly what's going on here. There's an increase in his understanding of God. There's an increase of God's grace. See, the psalmist is still mindful of the affliction that is all too present. And for us is no doubt all too present. But you know, the Lord sometimes for his own reasons will choose to leave a thorn in the flesh. We don't know why. I love one of the phrases of Oswald Chambers again. He says, the Lord reckons on you for extreme service with no explanation on his part and no complaining on yours. You know, do we trust God like that? That he can do whatever he wants with us and we're not going to complain and he doesn't have to explain. We've already seen, verse 68, God is good and does good. God will never do anything that's not good and particularly with us, we, he's purchased us. I mean, just think, we have been purchased at the highest possible price. We've been purchased by the blood of Jesus. Of course God is going to tend for us and care for us. Just read Psalm 23. He's a shepherd that loves his sheep. To be quickened by God's word is in a sense to reverse the effects of the fall. Jesus, of course, is the word made flesh. And when we are quickened by Jesus, we are truly alive. The world is spiritually dead. They died, or we died spiritually back in the Garden of Eden. But it's only by being born again of the Spirit of God that we can be made truly alive. The Word does quicken us. And as he prayed back in verse 71, he said, it's good that we have been afflicted. It's true because it exposes our true condition. It shows how much we need a Savior. And it removes any pretense. When we go through those moments of affliction, it's very much like we read in Hebrews 12 of that shaking. It shakes all the things that can be shaken and it leaves just that which cannot be shaken. And God would have that in our lives to remove all the things, all the trivial things, all the things that really are unimportant. They don't help us, they don't mean anything. And so that all that is left is just that which really matters and that which abides is God, his word, and his love for us. And anything else that we are drawn to, really, ultimately it becomes idolatry if it becomes more important or starts replacing God in our lives in any way. Verse 108, Except I beseech thee the free will offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me thy judgments. I love this verse for two reasons. Firstly, because it's that overflowing of praise. Psalm 33 verse 1 says, Praise from the upright is comely. It's good. It's right and proper that the righteous would praise God. We have so much to praise him for. You know, he's overcome the world. 1 John 4, 4 tells us that he that is within us is greater than he that is in the world. But even the psalmist here in, in his praise, this free will offering that he speaks of, 
is mindful of his need and, and again asks. He just includes a petition here. Even in praising God, he's saying, oh, but Lord, I still need you to teach me. But we, sh- we should come to that place of just being able to willingly and with joy just bring our praise to him. Another thing my, my grand told me was that you know, whenever you have a, a difficult day, and my context back then was a, a tough day at school, but we all have now in our daily lives tough days. She said, praise God. She said, just go home and just spend a moment just praising God. And it changes everything. It changes your perspective. You start to see things from God's angle. And of course, this is why when we read in scripture these commands about how to pray, and there's many examples, and they all have the same theme, and that is putting God first. When Jesus taught the disciples to pray, what did he say? Well, we start with our Father, who is in heaven. Hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Nothing about us yet. You see, when we pray, we tend to start with us, our issues, our problems. Lord, help me with this, do this, help me that. But Jesus says, when we pray, we should start by focusing upon God. Because actually, by the time we get to ourselves, it becomes so trivial that actually it loses that intensity that it had. That's not to say our problems don't matter, that God isn't bothered about them. But they become so big because we look at them from our side, allowing our own illumination on them. When we look at it from God's side and in the light of his word, when we realize that God is completely in control, problems just dissipate. Verse 109 of Psalm 119. My soul is continually in my hand, yet do I not forget thy law. I think this is a, a frightening verse. Because it would be really, really good if this verse said, my soul is in God's hands. But it doesn't say that. It says that my soul is continually in my hand. You know, I, I would love it. You know, there's uh, one of the opening verses in the psalm. Verse 5 says, Oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. Then I shall not be ashamed when I have respect unto all thy commandments. I will praise thee with uprightness of heart. But, you see, the reality is that God doesn't force us to go his way. The psalmist says, oh, that my ways were directed, that I had no other choice but to go your way. And here he says, my soul is continually in my hand. The the, the wonderful thing would be if God just took over completely and just didn't give us free choice and made us go in his way, in his path. Because then there would be blessing. But God doesn't do that because he's given us this gift of free choice. And so we have this moment by moment, day by day choice as to how we're going to live our lives. You know, our spiritual condition is largely in our own hands. If we entrust God, if we put him as the Lord of our lives, and we choose to walk in his way, well then there is all these blessings that we've been reading about. If on the other hand we choose to go our own way, and this is exactly what we read in Proverbs 14, I believe, you know, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. And this is where we start to grow in grace as we come through this psalm and realize that actually we can't sit there and blame other people. We can't sit there and say it's not fair. This is about us. It's about you. It's about me making choices to walk by faith. God will give us all the resource of heaven. You see, of course, our consolation is that we've been purchased by his blood, as we've said already, and we are eternally secure So the issue, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if he is your Lord and Saviour, the issue is not one of eternity. But the issue is one of the quality of your life now. 
the issue is this sanctification. How much of God do you want? How much of yourself are you prepared to let go? You see, God wants all of us. He wants us to give him our everything. Such a great responsibility. But again, he says, my soul is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget thy law. You see, all the way through this, the emphasis is on coming back to God's word time and time again. Verse 110, he says, the wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I erred not from thy precepts. As if we need to be continually reminded, the psalmist again just tells us here, that the danger that's lying in our path, the wicked have laid a snare. That's why you need a light. Because otherwise you won't know where to go and you will probably end up falling into that snare. You know, every step that we take could lead to our undoing. But we need to consult the map that he's given us. Come back to his word. You know, his precepts that are spoken of in this verse, they're not just for instruction, but also for preservation. Verse 111, Thy testaments have I taken as a heritage forever. They are the rejoicing of my heart. It's, it's almost here as if the psalmist is not quite sure whether he's been given this permission or not, but you know what, I'm going to claim it anyway. I'm going to take your testimonies, they are going to be my heritage, this is what I'm, I'm having. And he's boldly laying claim here to God's testimonies as his own inheritance and reward. You know, the world can have whatever they want. They can try and amass wealth and position and titles and honour and respect, whatever they think they want. What I want are God's testimonies. Because he knows that if he has that, it will be adequate for him to complete his journey. This is the rejoicing of my heart. There's a lot of people out there today that don't have joy in their hearts. They don't have that clarity that comes from the Lord's testimonies. Verse 112 says, I've inclined my heart to perform thy statutes always even unto the end. Now, this is interesting because previously he'd asked God to incline his heart. But now he's recognizing his own responsibility. That he must exercise the free choice that he has. You see, previously that free choice had been used to choose ways other than God's ways. But he's come to that place now of wanting to choose God's ways. And he says, I have inclined my heart. I've realized I have a choice. I've been granted the victory. For us, we know that David, seemingly the author, didn't have the revelation and knowledge we have now. But we know that in Christ, we have the victory. You see, now he's done the impossible. And he's made straight that which was crooked. You know, how could our crooked lives be straightened? Well, it's only by God's word. But we find ourselves in this position, and he's able to say, I have inclined my heart to perform those statutes always, even unto the end. This is now the way I will live my life. And I I just hope and I pray and I encourage you to just stay in God's word until you get to this point, if you're not there already, that you come to a place, and it may take a long journey, we're 112 verses into this psalm, and he's got to a place of finally saying, you know what? I am going to follow you, Lord. And this isn't just uh, an attempt on his part. This isn't just, as we said before, it's not a, a resolution. That's not the way it works. Because this is with the full knowledge that the moment he steps in faith, God will be there to provide everything he needs. It's only by God's word. Now notice again, just in this section, what we've seen already. We've got this full 
representation of all the help that's available. He says, teaching me thy judgments, in verse 108. I do not forget thy law, 109. I've heard not from thy precepts, in 110. Thy testimonies I've taken, verse 111. In 112, he says that God will, so he will perform God's statutes. You know, it's so bright and varied, this lamp that has been given to light our way. You know, and I was just, just thinking about this as I was just penning these notes and just thinking about the way light is. You know, a normal torch will only light up so much. We all know full well that there are lights at either end of the spectrum that a normal torch will not illuminate. And it's just like that with God's word because we've got things here where God has given us his judgments, his law, his precepts, his testimonies, his statutes, all these different ways of illumination. See, there's a lot of things that are not visible to the naked eye. Just as there are things in our path that we might miss altogether if we relied on our natural sight. So we need the full spectrum of God's word to be a lamp to our feet that exposes the potential danger of every step. It's kind of now I feel that almost we've completed that foundation course in walking by faith. If you like, through these 112 verses to this point, we've sat the theory exam, we're now ready for the practical. You know, by the end of this section, we've completed two times seven times eight verses. Two is the number of witness. Seven speaks of being complete. Eight speaks of new beginnings. And the whole of this study for me, it was, came about based upon that verse in Hebrews 6, which speaks about, let us go on unto perfection. You know, there's a lot of instruction, a lot of doctrine which you need to get nailed down. We need to understand about God's judgment, about resurrection, about so many other aspects and issues, all important things. But that's all the basic building blocks. And the writer of the Hebrews says, let's get that nailed down. Let's understand that so that we can go on to perfection. And I think this psalm is that next jump. This is that, how do we go on to perfection? And I think at this point in the psalm, the psalmist has got just to that place. Let's just take you through the next eight verses quickly. We're not going to spend as long going through them, but I just a few points to, to highlight here. Firstly, the, the, the section, the, the Hebrew letter is Samek. The verb from which the, the, the letter name means, it, come, it means to support or to uphold. And that is exactly the theme that we see through this. It starts 113. I hate vain thoughts, but thy law do I love. Uh, isn't that the, the goal in one sense of the Christian life, to walk by faith, to obey through choice? but also have the power to perform that which the heart and mind are united toward. Isn't what Paul tells us in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds? And then we put on the new man, which was, as Ephesians 4, 24 tells us, after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. You know, shouldn't we come to that place where we hate things that are not of God? And the comparison, of course, again, is God's law. But thy law do I love. You know, and again, saints this morning, remember that this has been a journey. It's growing in grace. We've had to learn to walk before we can run. And to get to this place of actually truly saying, I hate vain thoughts, but thy law I love. Well, there's 112 verses that have gone before this that have brought the psalmist to this place. And again, we must forever be mindful that it's his word that has quickened us, not our own volition. We didn't start this by making a choice. We started this by being moved by God's grace. And every step of the way, it's been his word that has brought about changes. Verse 114 says, Thou art my hiding place and my shield. I hope in thy word. Now I think this is good because we should all have a place of retreat from the battle or so. 
You know, a place where we can go a safety from the storms of life. Because otherwise we can easily end up getting swept away because life can just be overwhelming. And he says, God himself is his hiding place and my shield. I hope in thy word. You see, there's not this time a blase going out, I've got it sorted, I've cracked it, I know how to walk by faith now, off I go. There's this statement of, I hate vain thoughts, but Lord, I love your word. I love thy law. But then straight away, but thou art my hiding place. I recognize that I need a place of retreat. Jesus said that we should have a prayer closet. Somewhere where we can go and be alone with our Father. Jesus himself, how frequently did he go and set himself apart to pray and have fellowship with God? Jesus himself needed that fellowship, so if he did, how much more us? You know, determine in your heart to find a place of retreat and go there often. Come to a place where you can be alone with God. You know, we've got to grow as Christians, to grow to maturity and learn to take up that shield of faith because the reality is we will be attacked. The fiery darts of the wicked one will come, but they can all be extinguished when we lift up that most valuable piece of spiritual armour. It's interesting that in Matthew 17, verse 19, around that, we've got this situation where the disciples encounter this demoniac, and they can't deal with it. Jesus comes down from the mountain. He'd been fasting and praying. He comes down. And the disciples said to ask the question, when Jesus deals with the problem, and they said, why, why couldn't we do that? And Jesus said, well, this kind comes out by nothing but prayer and fasting. You see, the reality was that Jesus hadn't been on the mount praying and fasting about this particular problem. And and I think there's an issue here with our understanding of what fasting is all about. Because many seem to think that if you you like, it's the heavy artillery that we bring in when we've got a major problem. Normally, we fumble through life. If there's a problem, as Christians, well, we'll pray. If it's really bad, we might fast. But that's not what fasting's about. Fasting isn't about a, okay, all else has failed. Fasting is about maintaining a relationship with God. That's why Jesus fasted. It's to be close to his Father. So when he came down from the mountain, he was prepared for whatever. Verse 115 says, Depart from me, you evildoers, for I will keep the commandments of God. Now if we are finding that place where we can put ourselves aside, apart from the world, where we can fellowship with the Lord, well then, we can make those bold claims. Depart from me. It's a statement. It's a declaration with authority. Just as Jesus did. Matthew seventeen eighteen says, And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. See, Jesus had such a relationship with his father that he spoke with authority. And we can have that kind of authority in the spiritual realm if only we spend time with our Heavenly Father. So two practical things that are coming out of this. Firstly, we've got to keep God's word as the center and the focus. Secondly, we've got to put ourselves aside from the world at times. We need to just shut the door from the world and just come before God. You know, you're not going to move forward. And, you know, if you're reading through this psalm, and I hope and pray that we're going through together, that you're reading each verse and studying as we're going. But there's no point going beyond this point if you're not prepared to put some time aside. Because you're not going to grow beyond this point if you don't put time aside and spend time praying. Spend time seeking him. And I'm not just talking about reading the Bible. That's great and I encourage you to do that. We should do that absolutely. We've been saying that all the way through. 
But times where we just sit down and take even just one verse and meditate on it and let God speak to you. But you're going to see as we carry on through the remainder of this psalm how the psalmist really starts to grow. His spiritual life just takes off. All these problems and difficulties and struggles he's gone through have all been a learning curve that are brought into this place. In verse 116 says, Uphold me. In fact, these two verses together. Uphold me according unto thy word that I may live. And let me not be ashamed of my hope. Hold thou me up. It's just the same thing again. Uphold me. Uphold, hold thou me up. And I shall be safe. And I will have respect unto thy statutes continually. See, again, he's pleading with God. This isn't about you or me making a determined effort to do this. is isn't a January the 1st, I'm going to give up chocolate, and then January the 2nd, you've given in. This is that absolute reliance on God. Because he's throwing all out and saying, Lord, I am going to follow you. I'm going to trust you. I will keep the commandments of my God in that previous verse, 1 more 5. But in order to do it, Lord, you need to uphold me. It is a stepping out in faith. It's what we've been trying to get to. How do we walk by faith? Well, by stepping out, by trusting him. And then praying that he'll uphold us according to his word. And notice again, uphold me according unto thy word. Because your word has already said you'll do it, so I know I can trust you in this that I may live and not be ashamed of my hope. We'll never be ashamed if we trust God. Again, hold thou me up and I shall be safe. And I'll have respect unto thy statutes continually. 118 carries on. Thou hast trodden down all them that err from thy statutes, for their deceit is falsehood. And I don't think there's any gloating in this, but it's just a declaration of God's faithfulness, because the psalmist has already prayed that God would judge the proud and the wicked. And now he observes that God has done it. He says, you have trodden down all them that are from their statues. For their deceit is falsehood. It's almost he feels sorry for them because of the condition that they put themselves in. They've chosen to deny the truth. And now, what do they have? But this goes on in 119. It says, thou puttest away all the wicked of the earth like dross. Therefore, I love thy testimonies. Now, that has happened. It will happen again. And ultimately, we get to books like Revelation and we see... The conclusion of the matter. The God will put away all the wicked of the earth like dross. And he says, therefore I love thy testimonies. But that's not an un- uh, uncompassionate perception. He's not just looking at the wicked and he's glad they're destroyed. But he's rejoicing in the fact that God is faithful. Because the world is a wicked place. They've rejected the one and only saviour of the world. They've chosen to go their own way. You know, it's a world that aborts over 100,000 babies every day. In fact, in the time we've just been going through this section, this Samic section, more than 150 babies have been killed in the womb. In the notes, I've got the sources of where I'm getting this data from, but if you want to Google it, you'll find it yourself. Excluding abortions, over 1,300 people are murdered every day. In London alone, an average of 14 people are stabbed every single day. You know, more and more are declaring themselves atheists. Morality is becoming so subjective that it erodes any sense of propriety. What does morality mean now, anyway? Everybody's seemingly free to decide for themselves what's right and what's wrong. The only thing that's clearly wrong is those that decide they want to follow Jesus Christ. You've probably heard the result of the Ashes Bakery thing this week. You know, once again, the world exercising its wisdom... Well, the psalmist says that you put away all the wicked of the earth like dross. That's how God sees them. That's what they are. 
It's not that God doesn't want them to be saved. God rejoices when the wicked repent. But for those that don't repent, there is judgment awaiting them. You know, we are living in the days that Isaiah spoke of. And he was speaking of the days leading up to Israel and Judah's captivity. And of them he said, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink, which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteous, the righteousness of the righteous from him. That's the world we're living in. God didn't allow Israel and Judah to get away with it. Neither will he allow the world today to get away with their iniquity. Just a note here, because speaking of loving his testimonies, let me again remind you what that word really means. It means to bear witness. And it's speaking of the things that God has testified of. Things that God has borne witness to as being true. Now God is outside of time. And he's bearing witness as to the right way. Because of course God can see the end from the beginning. So he's given us the benefit of his wisdom. And God has recorded in his word what he will do. The book of Revelation as I mentioned a moment ago is a great example of his testimonies. Foretelling the destruction of the wicked. But it speaks of this unending hope for the righteous. So to conclude this morning, verse 120, My flesh trembles for fear of thee, and I am afraid of thy judgments. Now it's as if suddenly the the psalmist has been just thinking about the wicked and what is going to happen to them. That God is faithful and just. But suddenly he remembers that God is faithful and just. You know, he's pondered the destiny of those who reject God. Becomes overwhelmed to the point of physically trembling. And it's right to fear God. We should never get blasé. For many Christians, God is just their buddy. That's never an image that's portrayed in scripture. Yes, we're told he's our friend. Yes, we can call him Abba. We can call him Daddy. But there's respect. We read in Deuteronomy 13 verse 4, You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and cleave unto him. A lovely word, that cleave, that being joined together. But we should fear him. The secret of the Lord, Psalm twenty-five, fourteen tells us, is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. Psalm 34, verse 9 says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. It's a good and healthy thing that we have this reverence and respect and this awe of God. It's not fear in terms of being frightened. It's the fear of respect. He's the potter, we're we're the clay. You know, none of us deserve his mercy, all of us deserve his wrath. So as we saw in a few verses back, let us offer that free will offering of our mouths to praise and adore him. You know, the angels around his throne never cease to give him praise and honour and glory. And one day we'll be there and we'll have that opportunity. Well, let us do it now. Let us spend our lives for the remainder of the time we have on this earth worshipping, adoring, living our lives for his honour and glory because we fear him, because he is worthy. There's a lot in these verses we've not brought out. There'll be more in the notes, but I just encourage you to continue to read through and study. Next week we'll pick up with verse 121 
just encourage you, we're going to try and do 16 verses again next week. So um, maybe take one or two verses a day, just read them, meditate on them, just see what God says to you, and just keep growing in grace. There is nothing better. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we thank you for this morning, for your word, that it is so rich, that it is so complete. Lord, you've given us your judgments, your testimonies, your statutes. Lord, your precepts. Lord, you've given us such a vast array and illumination, Lord, to light our path. That, Lord, we have a lamp for our feet. None of us need to take a step out of here today in uncertainty. Lord, we may not always understand why, but, Lord, we can all know the next step because your your word will illuminate the path for us. So, Lord, help us to trust your word, to read your word, to meditate in your word. Help us, Lord, to find time to put aside, recognizing, Lord, that the wicked have laid traps for us. And, Lord, if it's not just the wicked externally, Lord, we know that our own hearts are wicked and would so easily trip us up. And so, Lord, we ask for your grace. Lord, as we've read this morning, please uphold us. And, Lord, keep us growing. Change us, Lord. Make us more like Jesus. Transform us by the renewing of our minds. We ask all of these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. May God richly bless you through this coming week.